0: Welcome to the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette for January 11, 2023. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. On today's front page, a major article entitled Ernst Visits Mason City Cement. It's written by Matthew Razab of the Globe Gazette. U.S. Senator Joni Ernst says visiting all 99 Iowa counties every year helps her do her job better in Washington, D.C., Tuesday morning stop at Heidelberg Materials Mason City Cement Plant illustrated the value of such visits for the Republican lawmaker. The fact that they do use a lot of recycled materials, a lot of refuse that goes into the energy process and how they're reducing their carbon emissions, it's very, very impressive, Burns said. I did not know that about this particular plant. Mason City Cement, formerly known as Lehigh Hansen, hosted an informational meeting and plant tour for Ernst. David Perkins, Vice President of Government Affairs and Communications North America for Heidelberg, said the company is committed to generating 50% of its revenue from sustainable products by 2030. Perkins and other company officials said they plan to reduce carbon dioxide emissions by 50% by 2030. Ernst said reductions in carbon emissions can be driven by the free market as well as governmental pressure. Obviously, the federal government does force a lot of that discussion and the actions by industry, she said. But we also see consumers that are driving that process. Consumers want to know industries are going green. The Germany-based company employs more than 50,000 worldwide and about 8,500 in North America, at its various businesses including about 120 in mason city perkins said cement being produced on the north end since 1911 can sometimes be a misunderstood product cement is really what holds cement is really what holds everything together he said cement and concrete you always hear those two terms and sometimes they're used interchangeably cement is like flour to a cake it holds everything together perkins added that concrete is the second most used building product in the world behind only water ernst said she and fellow u.s senator chuck grassley used their 99 county tours to inform their legislative decisions we try and take away any information that might be helpful to us at the federal level she said We have lots of regulations that are pushed out by the federal government in addition to talking about mason city cement and greenhouse emissions ernst spoke on a variety of other issues at the plant she said her immediate priorities this session include agriculture the military and negotiating with democrats i anticipate that i'll be on the same committees that i served on in the last congress ernst said We are working on the 2023 Farm Bill reauthorization, which is very impactful for the state of Iowa. Ernst said she hopes to continue her work on the Armed Services Committee to ensure the military is the best equipped in the world and to keep soldiers safe. She also is excited to serve on the Small Business Committee. Overall, I'll hopefully be the ranking member of the Small Business Committee, and that is extremely impactful for Iowa, Because over 98% of our businesses in Iowa are small businesses, she said. Republicans took over the House of Representatives after the November election, but failed to win the Senate. One of the first things House Republicans did was block legislation to fund 87,000 new IRS employees. The Senate is not expected to pass a similar bill. Now we have to negotiate, and I think that's okay, Ernst said. I have heard a lot about those 87,000 new IRS agents, and we can use more workers that are processing behind the phone lines. She said businesses and individuals she has spoken with complain about long waiting periods when they attempt to contact the IRS. Last week, it took House members 15 separate ballots over a number of days before finally electing Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House. On Friday... U.S. Representative Marionette Miller-Meeks tweeted that, under Republican control, the House will run like a well-oiled machine. Ernst didn't directly answer whether she agreed with Miller-Meeks, but is optimistic moving forward. I do think that Republicans do have good goals in mind, good objectives, and we can come together and make it work. I would say that the Iowa Republicans are a very well-oiled machine. Earlier Tuesday, Ernst stopped by the original SAW company in Britt. She later visited Northwood Kensett and St. Ansgar High Schools. Also on the front page, an article entitled Iowans Give Millions to Sheriff's Group that Spends Only 34% on Charity. Less than 34% of the 2.6 million Iowans have donated to an Iowa Sheriff's Group in recent years has been used for the stated purpose of training officers and helping privileged under, underprivileged children. Newly disclosed tax filings by the Iowa State Sheriff's and Deputies Association Institute indicate the organization raised more money in 2021 than at any time in the past 20 years. The records indicate Iowans donated $525,083 in 2021 a 22% increase over the previous year. Iowans who donate to the Institute are typically told their money will be used to provide critical support and training for law enforcement and will help send underprivileged children to camp and provide support for the Iowa Special Olympics. Since 2016, Iowans have given $2,608,941 to the cause, According to tax records. During that same time, the Institute has reported spending $883,778, just over a third of the total amount that was donated, on the charitable purposes outlined in its solicitations. For example, in the 12 month period that ended in November 2021, the Institute raised $525,083 in donations. It reported spending $445,000 that year, with its biggest expenses being fundraising fees, conventions, and meetings. The ISSDA Institute's tax filings indicate the organization raises money from Iowans largely through direct mail solicitations, some of which bear the signature of an Iowa sheriff. Earlier this year, for example, Central Iowa residents received solicitations on a letterhead that stated in bold letters from Sheriff Kevin Schneider, Polk County, alongside the bad-shaped design of the Institute. The letter was signed by Schneider not as an ISSDA member, but as the county sheriff who asked for donations to, quote, keep our communities safe, close quote. The letter stated, your support for the Iowa State Sheriff's and Deputies Association Institute is needed today in order for us to provide not only critical support and training to your Sheriff's Office, but also much needed funding for our YMCA Camp in Boone and Iowa Special Olympics. Unlike most nonprofits, the Institute reports to the IRS that the donations raised by its hired fundraiser are actually membership fees. Out of $525,083 the Institute raised in 2021, it paid $180,480 in fees to its hired fundraiser. The Institute reported to the IRS the fundraiser is a company named Paramount Strategies. However, Paramount Strategies is not a fundraising company. It is a lobbying firm that represents the Iowa State Sheriffs and Deputies Association and other clients at the Iowa Capitol. Company President Tony Phillips said Monday that Paramount Strategies has done no fundraising work for the Association or the Institute. Washington County Sheriff Jared Schneider, who is the Financial Director of the ISSDA, said Monday morning that he couldn't answer questions about the organization's finances But that he or someone else would get back to the Iowa Capitol Dispatch with information. No one from the ISSDA subsequently contacted the Capitol Dispatch, and neither the organization's president or secretary could be reached for comment. Polk County Sheriff Kevin Schneider was also unavailable for comment. In past years, the Institute has reported paying an Oklahoma fundraising company called Resource One also known as Altus Marketing, to raise money from Iowans through direct mail solicitations. The conventions and meetings of the Iowa State Sheriff's and Deputies Association, which provide some of the training for which donations are solicited, have generated controversy in the past. In 2021, the ISSDA's annual conference had as its keynote speaker, Chrisanne Hall, a Florida attorney who is among the leading proponents of the so-called constitutional sheriff's movement. Hall argues that the federal government has no authority that exceeds that of the nation's elected county sheriffs. She has called government decisions to close down businesses in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic as unlawful and has said America is now a full-on market Marxist state Bent on forcing people to become vaccinated against COVID-19, because this is America, they have to feed you lies to keep you under their Marxist agenda. Hall says in one of her videos. Hall has also questioned the authority of the U.S. Capitol Police, whom she has compared to Nazi Germany's SS or Schutzstaffel, and questioned the FBI's authority to arrest those involved in the January 6, 2021 riot at the U.S. Capitol. The FBI does not have jurisdiction in your state, your county, or your city, Hall told sheriffs. The sheriff can override the governor and kick the feds out of the county. In 2019, the Southern Poverty Law Center reported that Hall had addressed the Florida chapter of the League of the South, a neo-confederate organization that the SPLC considers a hate group. In defense of her decision to speak to the group, Hall told the SPLC that, quote, our states are not fiefdoms under subjugation to an unquestionable despot. Also on today's front page is an article entitled Iowa's Ethanol Production Sets New Record, Group Says. The article is by Jared Strong from the Iowa Capitol Dispatch. Ethanol plants in Iowa produced an estimated 4.5 billion gallons in 2022, a new record for the state, according to the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association. The association's estimate is based on survey data, public reports, and other information. It surpasses the state's 2021 estimated production record of 4.4 billion gallons. Iowa continues to set the pace for ethanol production around the world, said Monty Shaw, executive director of the association. The attractive price of E15 and E85 drove sales during the 2022 gas price spike. Barring a recession, we expect ethanol demand to grow each year as Iowa and other states make progress in increasing access to E15, often marketed as unleaded 88. The new production record is roughly the current total production capacity of the state's 42 ethanol plants according to association data the industry is an important market for iowa farmers more than half of the state's corn is used to produce ethanol state lawmakers last year adopted legislation that would require the sale of blended fuels that are 15 percent ethanol at gas stations E10, a blended fuel with 10% ethanol, has long been the standard blend. The new state law has exempted exemptions for smaller gas stations and grant money to help update underground tanks and pumps to accommodate the higher ethanol blend. Federal legislation that would expand the summertime availability of E15 in many states has lacked sufficient support for years for adoption but the country's largest trade association for the oil and natural gas industries indicated late last year it will support the idea. In local news on page two, is an article entitled Reynolds Awards Child Care Grants. Mason City Chamber Foundation awarded eight new openings. Governor Kim Reynolds on Monday announced more than $443,000 in federal pandemic money has been awarded to five projects involving 11 businesses in the state that will help create 77 new child slots. The money will be used to support partnerships between employers and child care centers to expand available slots. Projects awarded funding include <coughs> Versova Management Sioux Center, 15 new slots. HNI Corp in Muscatine, eight new slots. Mercy One Medical Center, Waterloo, 36 new slots. Siouxland DQ, Sergeant Bluff, 10 new slots. Mason City Chamber Foundation, Mason City, eight new slots. Grant funding provided to awarded employers will be used to fund part of the cost of child care for employees. All projects were required to provide a plan for sustainability of the outcome beyond the grant funding. The last round of funding in September created nearly 1,800 new child care slots in 23 communities across Iowa, said Iowa Department of Human and Health Services Director Kelly Garcia. Also, Republican Governor Kim Reynolds will appear in a new 30-second ad promoting legislation that would create state-funded private school scholarships. Priorities for Iowa a conservative political action committee based in des moines launched a six-figure ad buy across iowa in support of reynolds school choice legislation the group announced the new ad monday featuring the governor in a classroom discussing the need to give parents more choices for their children's education in the video reynolds states iowa has increased school funding by one billion dollars in the past decade But money alone isn't the solution. Parents also need choice, Reynolds says in the ad, to send their kids to whatever school is best for them, regardless of income or zip code. Iowa House Republicans have pushed back on the voucher program for the past two years over objections from rural school districts who fear the proposal would sap state aid to public schools and limit course offerings lead to larger class sizes and force more school consolidations. The proposal, which was a major plank of Reynolds' re-election campaign and one of her top priorities for the newly begun 2023 legislative session, would have taken about $5,360 out of public school for each student who took advantage of the program for use at a private or charter school. That plan would have made 10,000 scholarships available to families. The plan included a provision that distributed some of a student's per-pupil funding to rural schools to mitigate some of the negative effects. The Iowa State Education Association, a teachers union in Iowa, criticized the ad Monday. Iowa families already have a choice in where they send their students to school. ISEA President Mike Baranek said in a statement, Iowa families do not want to use public money for private schools to pick and choose who they will admit. Private school vouchers pull critical resources from public schools, which educate 90% of our students. Iowa families choose public money for public schools. In other local news, MCHS Instrumental Music to host fundraiser concerts. The Mason City High School Instrumental Music Department will host its 13th annual Showcase concert from noon to 4 p.m. Saturday, January 14 in the Mason City High School Cafeteria. This year's Showcase is a fundraiser for the Hawkeye Harvest Food Bank. The goal for the students is to collect 2,500 items to help the food bank. Groups performing throughout the afternoon will include the String Orchestra, Symphonic Band, Concert Band, Jazz Band One, and the Riverhawk Rock Pep Band, according to a press release. There will also be special music by the staff. Godfather's Pizza and other lunch items will be available for purchase. The performance is free to the public, seating will be available, and free will donations of non-perishable food items or money will be accepted. Come and enjoy an afternoon of music at the high school and help out those in need in our community at the same time. In news of the nation and the world, there is a brief article regarding the unrelenting California rainstorm. Cars remain in a sinkhole Tuesday in Chatsworth, California. California saw little relief from drenching rains on Tuesday, as the latest in a relentless string of storms swamped roads, turned rivers into gushing flood zones, and forced thousands of people to flee from towns with histories of deadly mudslides. At least 14 people have died since last week. The storm prompted a few tornado warnings early Tuesday and brought heavy snow to the Sierra Nevada a day after dumping up to 14 inches of rain at higher elevations in central and southern California. After a brief respite, another storm is expected to barrel into parts of the state beginning Wednesday, adding to the misery and further saturating areas already at risk of flooding. There is an article entitled GOP Leader Once Assessment. Council says White House cooperated with National Archives. The article from the associated press says the top republican on the house intelligence committee requested tuesday the u.s intelligence community conduct a quote damage assessment close quote of potentially classified documents found in the washington office space of president joe biden's former institute representative mike turner sent the request tuesday to director of national intelligence avril haynes saying that biden's retention of the documents put him in quote potential violation of laws protecting national security including the espionage act and presidential records act period Close quote the revelation that biden potentially mishandled classified or presidential records could prove to be a political headache for the president who called former President Donald Trump's decision to keep hundreds of such records at his private club in Florida, quote, irresponsible. Biden ignored shouted questions about the matter Tuesday during a bilateral meeting with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in Mexico. Turner's request came a day after the White House confirmed that the Department of Justice was reviewing a small number of documents with classified markings. The documents were discovered as Biden's personal attorneys cleared out the offices of the Penn Biden Center, where the president kept an office after he left the vice presidency in 2017 until shortly before he launched his presidential campaign in 2019, the White House said. Senator Mark Warner, the Democratic chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, called for a briefing on the Biden documents. The documents were found on November 2, 2022, in a locked closet in the office, said Special Counsel to the President, Richard Sober. Sober said the attorneys immediately alerted the White House Counsel's Office, which notified the National Archives and Records Administration, which took custody of the documents the next day. In other national news, Feds pitch student loan safety net. The White House is moving forward with a proposal that would lower student debt payments for millions of Americans now and in the future, offering a new route to repay federal loans under far more generous terms. President Joe Biden announced the repayment plan in August, but it was overshadowed by his sweeping plan to slash or eliminate student debt for 40 million Americans. Despite the low profile of the payment plan, some education experts see it as a more powerful tool to make college affordable, especially for those with lower incomes. Education department officials on Tuesday called the new plan a student loan safety net that will prevent borrowers from getting overloaded with debt. In another article, Biden and Trudeau discuss Haiti and trade. President Joe Biden and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on Tuesday, pledged to promote prosperity for people throughout the hemisphere as they opened talks about the fragile security situation in Haiti, North American trade, political unrest in Brazil, and more on the sidelines of the North American Leaders' Summit. The two met before a three-way meeting with Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador at the Mexico City Summit. The U.S. and Canadian leaders warmth during a brief appearance before reporters at the start of their talks stood in stark contrast to a more brusque exchange a day earlier between Biden and Lopez Obrador who complained of abandonment and disdain for Latin America. All three world leaders were to discuss migration, trade and climate change as they look to mend tensions that have divided the continent. On the Ukraine war, Russian forces escalated their onslaught against Ukrainian positions around the wrecked city of Bakhmut. The Moscow-backed leader of occupied areas of Donetsk said Tuesday that Russia's forces were very close to taking over nearby Soledad, but at a high price. Trump executive Alan Weisselberg, a longtime executive for Donald Trump's business empire, was taken into custody Tuesday begin serving a five-month jail term for dodging taxes on 1.7 million dollars in job perks, a punishment the judge said was probably too lenient. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration said Tuesday it studied traffic crashes in 2019 that killed an estimated 36,500 people, injured 4.5 million, damaged 23 million vehicles, and cost society $340 billion in one year, or just over $1,000 for each of the country's 328 million people. Unthemed UNA 35, a far-right internet personality known as Baked Alaska, who streamed live video while he stormed the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, was sentenced Tuesday to two months of imprisonment followed by two years of probation in the attack. On George Santos, two Democrats asked the House Ethics Committee on Tuesday to investigate Representative George Santos, the newly elected Republican from New York, who has admitted to lying about his job experience, college education, and even family heritage, and faces questions about campaign financial disclosures. And finally, Democratic Rep. Katie Porter of California said Tuesday she will seek the U.S. Senate seat held by Senator Dianne Feinstein, a fellow Democrat and the oldest member of the chamber, in 2024. You are listening to the reading of the Mason City Globe-Gazette for January 11, 2023, on IRIS, the Iowa Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now, let's turn to today's obituaries. Charlotte May Nelson Feltz, born February 7, 1933, and passed away on January 6, 2023. Charlotte May Feltz, age 89, beloved mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother, passed away on January 6, 2023, peacefully snuggled in her bed at home, surrounded by her children, Charlotte was born on February 7, 1933, in Lyle, Minnesota, to Nordahl and Lenore Olson-Nelson. After graduating from high school in 1951, Charlotte attended Luther College. She married Donald Feltz on October 15, 1960, at Queen of Angels in Austin, Minnesota, and had two children, Bradley and Rebecca. She centered her life around family, friends, faith, and all things sweet. They made their home in Osage, Iowa. During those years, Charlotte enjoyed raising her children, spending time with family and many friends. She also enjoyed her time working at Dee's Jewelry and rarely brought home a paycheck because she loved all things that sparkled. Charlotte enjoyed gardening, canning, baking, and spending time on the acreage on the River Road with her sweet dogs, King and Cuddles. She enjoyed having coffee with her girlfriends, Playing cards with her card club group, going up north with her family and day trip adventures, shopping and finding a good deal, going to rummage sales, attending concerts and the theater, and doing hardanger with her favorite and doing hardanger were her favorite pastimes. She will be deeply missed by her family and friends. She is survived by her children, Bradley, wife Diane Feltz of Lake Elmo, Minnesota and Rebecca, husband, Corey Stephenson, of Chanhassen, Minnesota. Five grandchildren, Ryan, wife, Nicole Feltz, Brianna, husband, Joel Sanderson, Jack Stephenson, Anna Stephenson, and Isaac Stephenson. Eight great-grandchildren, and special friend, Bob Ball, also survived by many beloved nieces and nephews and many lifelong friends. Charlotte was preceded in death by her husband, Donald Feltz, and infant son, brothers Leland, Norman, and Gary, sisters Eileen Hurd, Eula Reshetar, and Carol Kraussauer, along with many beloved in-laws, nieces, and nephews. Charlotte's Celebration of Life will be held at 11 a.m. on Thursday, January 12, 2023, at Klassen Jordan Mortuary in Austin, Minnesota. James Jim Lyle Medlin, 79, of Mason City, passed away peacefully surrounded by loved ones on Monday, January 9, 2023, at Mercy One North Iowa Hospice in Mason City. A visitation will be held from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. on Friday, January 13, 2023, at Hogan Bremner, Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel in Mason City. Everyone is welcome to attend the graveside service that will begin at 10 a.m. on Saturday, January 14, at Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel. Then a procession will take place to Elmwood St. Joseph Cemetery in Mason City, with Pastor Sid Bull officiating. A gathering following the service will be held at St. James Lutheran Church in Mason City. In lieu of flowers, the family asks that memorial contributions be made to the All-Vets Center, St. James Lutheran Church, or the Lime Creek Nature Center. Jim was born on October 2, 1943, the son of George, Lyle, and Della Medlin. He grew up in the North Iowa area and was a graduate of Carpenter High School. On October 16, 1964, he married Barbara Hollitz in St. Ansgar. The couple began their life in Mason City, raising three children. In June of 1964, Jim began working for Decker Meatpacking Plant, which later became Armour Eckrich. Throughout his entire life, he had a hard work ethic, spending 44 years with the same company. He ended his career as a mechanic and retired on April 1, 2008. After retirement, Jim participated in military honor guard ceremonies. Jim enjoyed his spring and fall fishing trips with his buddies and family. He liked playing cribbage, poker, listening to classical music, and watching westerns. Those left to cherish memories of Jim are his children, Mary witty, Connie, husband Mike Cervantes, and Jamie Medlin, all of Mason City. Grandchildren Jenna, Haley, Rachel, Marcos, Amber, and Thomas, brother Ed Allen, Barbara's sisters, Beverly Beaver and Jane Daluge, along with numerous nieces, nephews, and friends. Jim was preceded in death by his wife of 56 years, Barbara, his parents, siblings Jerry Allen, Robert Medlin, Donna Wentworth, George Medlin, as well as many beloved family members. The family would like to thank everyone who cared for Jim, Mercy One North Iowa Hospice, Dr. Brett Mulkey of Forest Park Clinic, staff of Mercy Heart and Vascular Institute, Jennifer McCambridge, PA, Lori Potter, RN, Dr. Martin, and Dr. Schultz with the Heart Failure Clinic out of University of Minnesota, as well as staff at Good Shepherd. Don Clausen Eldridge, age 49, of Neola, passed away on Sunday, January 8, 2023. Don was born November 27, 1973, to the late Fred and Linda Clausen in Moline, Illinois. She grew up in Mason City, Iowa, where she obtained her bachelor's degree while living there. Don relocated to Neola when she accepted a management position at Menards in Shelby, Iowa. She later worked for Jack Lynx, Diamond Oil, and FedEx. Survivors are sons William Allen Eldridge of Fort Dodge, Hunter Lee Thompson of Columbus, Nebraska and brother Bruce Claussen of Virginia Beach, Virginia. Charlene Ray Yancey, age 69, passed at home on September 17, 2022, with her family at her side after a lengthy illness. Charlene Ray Yancey, age 69, passed at home on September 17, 2022, with her family at her side after a lengthy illness. Charlene was born in Mason City, Iowa to Isidore and Ruth Stefani. She grew up in Manly, Iowa, attending North Central High School, graduating in 1976. After high school, she attended NIACC and graduated with Nurse Aid Certificate. She then went to work at Park Hospital, which now is West Campus. While working full-time, she returned to NIACC, obtaining her LP Nurses License. She soon met her now husband, Richard Yancey, married February 14, 1978, started a family, and moved to Independence, Missouri. After moving, she started working at Truman Hospital, Kansas City, Missouri. After several years in Missouri, she returned to college, obtained her RN, nursing license. She then went to work at Centerpoint Hospital, Independence, Missouri. Charlene loved family events, cooking for her family, and shopping when family came to visit. Enjoyed her grandsons, watching them grow, and school activities. Her pride was raising her daughter and son. Charlene is survived by her husband, Richard Yancey, daughter, Dawn Yancey, son, Stephen Yancey, grandchildren, Alex and Thomas Yancey, three sisters, Doris Payne from Mason City, Darlene clark Kensett. Annette Banks and Manley, two sister-in-laws, Mavis Beanman and Kathy Anninson, both of Mason City. She was preceded in death by both parents, a nephew and three brothers. In sports, the big headline is, Number 1 Georgia Bullies TCU 65-7 to win a second consecutive title. Stetson Bennett threw two touchdown passes and ran for two scores in the first half as No. 1 Georgia demolished No. 3 TCU 65-7 to become the first team to win consecutive college football playoff national championships. Stetson Bennett flashed a wry grin as he walked off the field, stopping to hug Coach Kirby Smart as the crowd roared. It was all standing ovations and sidelined snacks in the fourth quarter of the most lopsided bowl season game in college football history. In emphatic and overwhelming fashion, Georgia became the first team to repeat as college football playoff national champions and left no doubt about the dogs are the new bullies on the block. Bennett threw two touchdown passes and ran for two scores in the first half, as number one Georgia demolished number three TCU 65 7 on Monday night. The Bulldogs, 15 0, are the first repeat champs in major college football since Alabama went back to back a decade ago. There appears to be a new dynasty emerging from the Southeastern Conference. We wanted our kids to play without fear, the Smart said. All year I told them, I said, we ain't getting hunted guys we're doing the hunting and hunting season's almost over we've only got one more chance to hunt and we hunted tonight tcu 13 and 2 the first cinderella team of the playoff era never had a chance against the georgia juggernaut unlike michigan in the fiesta bowl semifinal, the bulldogs could not would not succumb to the hypnotode spell georgia turned in one of the all-time beatdowns in a big game, reminiscent of Nebraska running over Florida by 38 points in the 1996 Fiesta Bowl, USC's 36-point rout of Oklahoma in the 2005 Orange Bowl, and Alabama's 28-point BCS blowout over Notre Dame in 2013. But this was worse. Too much talent, too well coached, Two straight titles for the Mean Machine in red and black, as the song goes. No team has ever scored more points in a national championship game dating to the beginning of the BCS in 1998. With 13 minutes 25 seconds left in the fourth quarter, Smart called timeout in the middle of an offensive drive so Bennett could exit to a hero's ovation in the final game of his circuitous college career. That was special, said Bennett, who finished 18-for-25 for 304 yards and four touchdown passes. I'll remember that for the rest of my life. The Bulldogs were munching on chicken wings on the sideline as the game wound down. Then, for the second straight year, the Bulldogs were showered by confetti and presented a championship trophy. I love this team. I love those fans. I love our band. I love everybody, Bennett said during the presentation ceremony, back to back baby back to back smart is now 81 and 15 in his first seven seasons at georgia with two national titles his mentor alabama coach nick saban was 79 15 with three titles in his first seven seasons with the tide the bulldogs were a different kind of dominant this season after losing 15 nfl draft picks from the 2021 team not quite as stingy on defense but more explosive on offense last year's team probably had more talent on it smart said but this cheer this team was different they had this eye of the tiger they weren't going to lose earlier in smart's tenure of his alma mater georgia fans worried about whether the former defensive coordinator for saban would be able to build an offense to match this high scoring era of college football under third-year coordinator todd munkin the bulldogs have become prolific creative and diverse offensively they picked apart tcu's 3-3-5 defense from all angles versatile tight end brock bowers had seven catches for 152 yards receiver lad mcconkey caught two tds georgia ran for 254 yards with seven players gaining at least ten the Bulldogs scored on all six times they touched the ball in the first half. Twice Bennett ran it in himself. The former walk-on turned two-time national champion was barely touched on the two quarterback keepers. He hit a wide-open McConkie for a 34-yard score in the first quarter, a perfectly executed play out of a bunched formation that had TCU's defensive backs in disarray. Bennett's 22-yard score to Odonai. Mitchell was a higher degree of difficulty, dropped in over a defender who had tight coverage. It looked a lot like the Bennett to Mitchell touchdown that gave Georgia a fourth quarter lead it would not relinquish against Alabama Alabama in last year's CFP title game. Georgia vanquished the tide last season to break a 41-year national title drought, avenging its only regular season loss in the process. There was no such drama against the upstart Horned Frogs. The journey was great. It's something I'll never forget, TCU running back Emari DeMarcado said. Obviously didn't end how he wanted it, but at the end of the day, this journey was something great. These Bulldogs never had to worry about Alabama. They rolled through the SEC, survived Ohio State in a classic CFP semifinal, and then completed a perfect season with a historic blowout. Do you have to take a loss to learn, Smart said? I mean why? Bennett hit Bowers for a twenty two yard score, with ten fifty two left in the third quarter to make it forty five seven. The sophomore from Northern California signaled touchdown while lying on the turf at SoFi Stadium. Bennett smiled as he tapped helmets with one of his linemen. He's got goat status and in Athens, Georgia forever, Smart said. Georgia's famous Bulldog mascot, UGA, could not make cross-country trip to root on his team, but it still felt a little like Sanford Stadium in Southern California. Many of the TCU fans cleared out with more than half the fourth quarter left, choosing to venture out into a rainy and chilly night rather than watch any more of the massive mismatch. I'm disappointed we didn't make a better show tonight because that's not indicative of who we are. But we'll look back. It's going to take some time before the sting to go away, I assure you. But we'll look back on the season and build on it from here, first year coach Sonny Dykes said. Heisman Trophy runner up Max Duggan threw two first half interceptions in the final game of his roller coaster TCU career. A four year starter who never played in a bowl before this season. Dugan led TCU on one of the most improbable runs in college football history. Unranked after a losing 2021 season and picked seventh in the Big 12, the Frogs won nine games by ten or fewer points. They were within a victory of the program's first national title since 1938. But they ran into a monster. In high school basketball, Mason City Boys basketball embraces a family culture. Monday's Mason City at Charles City boys' basketball game was emotional for Nick Trask. Trask, the head coach of the Riverhawks, is from Charles City, and his team was riding a four-game winning streak into the non-conference rivalry matchup. Mason City looked dominant for much of the first half, leading 30-26 after 16 minutes of action. The Riverhawks relinquished control of the contest in the second, falling 64-51. We just came out in the third quarter, and I think they made maybe their first five three-pointers, Trask said post-game, and we went 0 for 6. They were good shots. It was just one of those nights where those shots didn't go down. All of a sudden, you shoot 0 for 6, and they're shooting 5 for 5. That's going to make a difference in the game. Then as you start going down the road, you've got to start getting a little riskier. That's going to open some things up for them if they can't capitalize. That's just kind of what happened. The Riverhawks were outscored by 17 points in the second half, but Trask encouraged his squad to focus on its effort, not the contest result. Tonight has a lot of special significance, Trask said post-game. We're pretty close to each other, so all the boys know each other. We talked before the game. I'm from Charles City, you know, so this means a lot to me. The importance of Monday's game for Trask went beyond Mason City and Charles City proximity and the Comets and Riverhawks' familiarity with each other. Trask's mother died on December 24, and the Riverhawks dedicated their matchup with the Comets to her. My mother just passed away Christmas Eve, Trask said, so we dedicated this game to her. I thought they came out and just played their butts off for her. So, missing the shots, I don't care at all. They came and gave me everything they've got, and that's a great tribute to my mother, who always supported me when I was playing at Charles City. Trask said he didn't miss many practices, team activities, or games, as he mourned the death of his mother because Mason City High School was on winter break. He added that his return to the coach's box proved to be therapeutic. It was over Christmas break, so we did have some of those breaks and stuff, Trask said, And it makes things a little bit difficult, but honestly, that's my therapy, being around my basketball guys. So it's fun. They did a great job just keeping things normal as usual. So that's kind of the way it went. Trask said his team has played a pivotal role in his grieving process. Usually, he picks his players and assistant coaches up emotionally. Over the last few weeks, the roles have been reversed. We really talk about how this is a family to us, and it is, Tras said. On and off the court, our program is all about family. They showed me that in my time of need, usually I get to be there for them. This was the time they got to be here for me, and they showed up, and that was really awesome. In other high school news, Sims S. Gildson Pace N.K., Lamont Sims and Colby Eskildson each scored 15 points as Northwood Kinsett pulled away from a halftime tie to beat Rockford 55 41 Monday in top of Iowa action. The game was tied 21 all at the break, but the Vikings outscored the Warriors 21 10 in the third quarter to take control. Eskildson added 17 rebounds, while Cooper Yulseth also reached double figures with 11 points. yulseth also had 10 rebounds, 6 assists, 4 steals, and 3 blocked shots. Rockford was led by Nick Groven, who pumped in 23 points on 10 of 13 shooting. In NBA news, three-point shooting leads to scoring binges. Giannis Anticonopo set a career-high with 55 points last Tuesday in Milwaukee's victory over Washington. And it wasn't even the week's top-scoring performance in the Central Division. That belonged to Cleveland's Donovan Mitchell, with a staggering 71 the previous night. The NBA these past few weeks has featured an almost nightly display of one-upsmanship among the game's greatest scorers. Whether it was Mitchell's extraordinary effort for the Cavaliers or Dallas Luka Doncic reaching 50 points three times in a nine-day span, everywhere you turn, it seems like another player is putting up a huge total. I think there are a lot of layers to it. You just see, night after night, guys are having enormous offensive games, Wizards coach Wes Unsell Jr. said. It's fun to watch as a fan, of course. Frustrating when you're trying to trying to game plan a, to stop some of these guys because they're scoring at all levels. The paint, the threes, getting to the line. Ten different players have already scored 50 points in a game this season. Antito Kumpo. Sorry if I butcher that. Mitchell, Donchik, Joel Embiid, Devin Booker, Anthony Davis, Clay Thompson, Pascal Siakam. Darius Garland and Stephen Curry. Before 2016 17, no more than eight different players had ever had a 50 point game in one season, according to Sport Radar. Since then, at least 10 have done it every season, including a record 14 in 21 22. Some of this is to be expected in what has become a very high scoring era. NBA teams were averaging 113.8 points per game entering Monday night, which, if it continues, would be the highest mark for the league since 1969-70. But the overall scoring environment only tells part of the story. In that 69-70 season, the teams averaged 116.7 points, but only two players had a 50-point game. In 84-85, the highest scoring season of the 80s, teams averaged 110.8 points, but only five players, Bernard King, Larry Bird, Purvis Short, Kevin McHale, and Moses Malone, produced a 50-point game that season. So what's happening lately is not just higher scoring league-wide. The top players are also producing huge games with remarkable frequency. Expansion may play a role. The number of teams is 30% higher than it was in 1985. More teams means more games, so it makes sense that there are more examples of a player scoring 50. But the sport has changed in other ways, too. Guys come into this league, and the most impressive thing is the skill set, the handle, and the shooting, Golden State coach Steve Kerr said. What's lacking, I think, is the foundation the institutional knowledge that players used to have when they came into the league after a few years of college. Sometimes the defense isn't great. Transition defense is at an all-time low in this league. Nowadays, basically every top scorer has some degree of proficiency from three-point range, whereas back in the 80s, some stars largely ignored the shot and nobody attempted all that many. Guys are taking 15 or 16 threes in some games, Los Angeles Clippers coach Tyron Lue said. Teams are encouraging guys to take those shots. And if you take so many shots, and if you get hot and make some, you can score a lot of points. So current players have a variety of ways they can accumulate points in a hurry. And the three-point shot affects the game even beyond that. With so many players capable of making open threes, Teams can space the floor in a way that punishes defenses for double teams. You have to pick and choose the guys you try and double team and get the ball out of their hands because they are not great passers. But there are some guys who can score but can also pick you apart with their passing, Lou said. So when you have guys like that, you want to let those guys try and get theirs and take everyone else out, but sometimes it can backfire on you as well. When King scored 60 points on Christmas in 1984, he didn't attempt a single three. Even this year, Antikuno Mopo didn't make any when he scored 55. But Mitchell attempted 15 and made seven in his 71-point game. I think that three-point line, as we've seen over the years, has definitely changed the game, Memphis coach Taylor Jenkins said. Now you're getting more guys to embrace that. The volume of attempts creates those opportunities. It's pretty rare that guys are shooting too repeatedly to get to that 50-point mark. <clears throat> it's definitely the evolution of our game to see more of it. I would expect that trend to continue.